0: Hey there, out there, everybody. Welcome back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast project. This is Dan Palmer coming at you with another episode. And um, I'm hoping you're doing all right out there, navigating your way through this extraordinary time, through this um, crisis in sense-making, a time when for many of us, me included, our sense-making capacities are getting pushed to and beyond their limits as we try and separate signal from noise and um and make sound decisions anyways a little bit about what's happening uh around around and about this project i personally i'm I'm really enjoying running online workshops on the topic of holistic decision making which some of you will have heard me exploring on previous podcast episodes and there's a bunch of information at uh, holisticdecisionmaking.org just kicked off the eighth iteration of that that six-week course which i'm just i'm finding really nourishing and really um really an honor and and a thrill to be able to share this this stuff with with others who are showing up some one one way or another the, the thing seems to fill itself up so that's That's been really fun and and just today or yesterday I had the the inspiration, the impulse to start thinking about um, some kind of online offering on the topic of living design process where together myself and participants go through a process and and learn about living design process in the context of living into um, a a living design process with regard to a a property or organisation or whatever it may be that they're involved in. Um, the Making Permaculture Stronger Developmental Community has got lovely energy and momentum at the moment, really enjoying the uh, the, the conversations and the the different things people are reading and, and sharing back into the main group and really looking forward to to continuing that journey together. Thanks to all of you involved in that and thanks on that note to all of you that are, um, are generous enough to support the project. Just re-listening to the start of this, I always forget to mention the actual link or whatever I mean it's I'm not very good at this am I anyway if you if if that's a bit of you you can go to making slash support find out more about it and actually that that makes me think of the fact that it's it's um, becoming more of a, a regular thing to receive an email um, or a message from one place or another from somebody out there who has come across the podcast and felt a resonance, like actually felt felt a resonance in their in their body with, um, I guess, like the energy of the show or whatever. And, and I'm really touched by that. And yeah, maybe that's maybe that's feeding into where we're heading today and beyond. I'm not sure, but I wanted to mention that and and thank you for for the messages. You know, it's I wouldn't say it's been a lonely journey, but um, you know there's been times where i, I ask questions of myself <laughs> what am i trying to do Why am i putting so much time into this and whatnot and, and it's so um so enriching to hear from those of you for whom this work matters now moving on to the topic of this episode it concerns a, a book a new book that's emerged into the permaculture literature its title is building your permaculture property its authors are rob avis michelle avis and dakota cohen And um, I'm releasing this episode um, as a kind of, I'll I'll mostly be reading out a a blog post I've written, and I've got at least three of them planned. And I wanted to give you a little bit of backstory, which is that originally when um, the authors kindly sent me a pre-release, preview, electronic version of the book, uh, and I looked at it, and then I wrote an endorsement, and they sent a, a hard copy too, which was lovely, thank you to you three for that, um, I felt some big feelings and it's been a heck of a journey, a heck of a journey. It's been like three months or maybe even more of me kind of navigating to a place where I can honor those feelings and also um, kind of feel like I'm constructively, productively able to engage. And so this this post will, uh, in this, this episode, will, will, will touch on those feelings, or the main ones um, and I wanted—I really wanted to acknowledge and, and let you know that uh, Rob and Dakota, two of the authors of this book, were kind enough to join me. I'd previously enjoyed a fantastic conversation, as, as you might have checked out, we, it was co-released by both of us with Dakota, I'm not looking at the book specifically, but just getting to know each other, and, and uh, we both felt a lot of resonance there. Anyway, Rob and Dakota were kind enough to join me, and, um, and listening back to the conversation which I originally had intended to release as a podcast episode, I felt embarrassed um by the energy i bought by the way i showed up um you know i, I was come i, I was borderline sort of aggressive in, in 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 my um the way i conducted myself and the dynamic fell into is good natured um and laughs along the way but certainly into a dynamic that was adversarial adversarial you know with the energy of me coming in as a is attacking or critiquing some of the ideas in the book and then trying to figure out what the heck I was talking about and and in a sense defend them. And that that really gave me a lot of room for pause and is one of the reasons there hasn't been an episode in a while, like realising how deeply inside of myself um, just sort of shadow underworld aspects um, around... For, that, that lend themselves to falling into a dynamic of right and wrong, and 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 all this stuff, and, and realizing how um, unconstructive that was, and damaging that was, and is to my genuine intention with making permaculture stronger, um, which will, which is about regenerating permaculture design process together, and I'll and I'll go into that when I start reading out the post. Um, so I wanted to acknowledge that and and, and thank Robin Dakota for humouring me, and Dakota at least for being open to continue the the conversation. Um, and, and also the fact that I've done a lot of work on myself in the last few months around this, um, not, not just in terms of engaging with these authors in this book, but in terms of engaging with this project and even beyond this project with other projects I'm part of, you know, kind of in a way cleaning up my, cleaning up my act and, 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 and um, striving to be, bring a more pure focused energy that is genuinely about and in service of a higher order of, of conversation and supporting the evolution of permaculture and other um, other spaces um, so it's been a humbling experience and a powerful experience and I'm really grateful to be experimenting with bringing a, a different kind of energy to the future of the project so we'll um, we'll see how it goes I welcome your reflections and your your sense of whether or not anything feels different all right let's bring up the the draft post it may change a bit but I don't think it'll change that much I, I sent it off to, to Dakota. Um, ahead of us planning to chat again just in case he had anything he, he thought was inaccurate or whatever so, so I'll I'll, I'll um, take that on board if, if he comes back with anything um, otherwise it'll it'll probably be about as it is now so the title of the post so let's, let's just take a pause here just take a, take a breath so this this is the intro wrapping up the pretext um, and And I'm about to start reading out the blog post. I'll, I'll no doubt throw in a few extra comments as we go along. The title is Regenerating Permaculture Design Process Together, Part 1 on World and Metaphors. And the text begins like this. Making permaculture stronger's core focus is regenerating permaculture design process together. By this, I mean the deep and hard work of A, honing in on permaculture's essential core and B, sourcing and developing design process understandings from and in alignment with that place. A necessary aspect of this work is developing new material, in brackets, I say ideas, metaphors, diagrams, examples, practices, etc. An equally necessary aspect is making space for this new material by finding and letting go of material that does not align or belong. I believe this work is like an acupuncture point, essential to the development of permaculture's radical, needed and enormous potential. I also believe that this work, which is ours as permaculturists to do, has barely begun. This series of three blog posts and corresponding podcast episodes is a heartfelt invitation into this kind of work. Where I want to be clear for you and within myself that I'm not writing this stuff as any kind of expert or person with the answers. While I have a couple of tentative conclusions and perspectives, I mainly have a wealth of questions and a a passionate commitment to create and hold spaces inside of which this work can happen. So, let the experiment begin. This series was prompted by the appearance of an exciting new book into the literature of permaculture design. Its title is Building Your Permaculture Property, Its authors, permaculture teachers and designers, Rob Avis, Michelle Avis, and Dakota Cohen, this last of which is also also a commercial farmer. The book lays out a clear and comprehensive approach to permaculture design process. A process the authors have developed over decades of combined practical experience, both personal and professional. I celebrate the existence of this book and all the hard-won learning that's gone into it. Furthermore, I believe this book is a profound contribution to exactly the kind of work I've just been describing. And I've got a footnote here, um, which reads, as, as I emailed in my endorsement to the authors, exuding a clarity, depth and usability that can only come from hard-won experience, this book makes a powerful and timely contribution to the literature of permaculture design. It lifts the bar a good many notches and will unquestionably bring great value to many thousands of folk developing their own places in permaculture-inspired directions, to existing permaculture designers and teachers, and indeed to permaculture's very evolution as a design system. I don't, I don't mention this in the post, um, but there's quite a, there's several aspects of the book that I really admire. One of, one of those is bringing Alan Savory's ideas from holistic management into a permaculture context in, in, a, in a more thorough and deeply integrated way that i've seen before and i was really impressed by some of the the work the authors have done on developing um the decision making framework in holistic management and bringing that into daily and weekly practices of um of deciding and planning and monitoring and, and, and so on um so yeah a lot a lot of really great stuff in there Coming back to the the post, I write. It is also true that when I initially flipped through it, I felt some big feelings. Feelings that are informing and energizing my effort to write these posts. Feelings that part of my current experiment involves me sharing openly here. Alright, feelings time. I felt joy in the sheer existence of this heartfelt, earnest attempt to advance the clarity and rigour of permaculture design. This work is so needed and such a gaping hole in permaculture that these three wonderful humans have done their very best to help fill. I'm still feeling really happy about this as I am at the obvious extent of their collaboration. Um, The collaboration between the authors whose different strengths flow into and make the book so much better than any one of them could have made it. I also felt anger, I felt anger, I felt anger to note a disconnect between the presentation of design process in the book and the design process developments and dialogues I've been involved in through making permaculture stronger. From my perspective, seemingly fertile opportunities for cross-pollination haven't happened, where To come to the point, the book includes much material that I have poured a lot of my life force into arguing does not belong in or do justice to permaculture's design process potential. And I've got a footnote here um, which says, I acknowledge that part of this was about my own ego and the wish that the discoveries of making permaculture stronger had been more widely engaged with. Then I say, while this anger has since mostly receded, it is still there also. I felt sad to reflect on the resulting prognosis for permaculture's evolution if there are not established systems for pooling and collaboratively crash testing and co-developing our mutual advances. If every design process book lays out its own take largely in isolation from a larger field of collaborative Development. this isn't about whether that's even accurate or not I, I, I had a sense it was for me and I felt sad about that you know that it seems to me permaculture lacks um, systems for for this kind of this kind of collaborative um, cross-pollination I felt afraid Considering my impression of the disconnect, how I might channel these feelings, these feelings I'm sharing with you now, toward engaging with the authors about their work in a positive, constructive way. I felt afraid of how gaps I perceive between our perspectives might be bridged without bridges being burned. I feel this fear still. Well, that said, it um, has diminished considerably um, since our first I'd say relatively disastrous from my perspective, conversation. Finally, I felt a different kind of anger in seeing what seemed to me to be a profusion of superficial endorsements of the book, this is including my own, that did not show any depth of engagement with its ideas. This sort of superficial blanket praise appears to be the norm in permaculture and I'm concerned what that means for permaculture's capacity to be in the game of evolution. If it's all your ideas are great and my ideas are great and we're all on the same page, array for permaculture. I mean, let's face it, at least some of our ideas aren't that great. And if you actually open the books, we're not all on the exact same page. Yeah, I'd love to see more critical, constructively critical reviews and kind of, you know, like actually poking and disrupting and questioning each other's ideas. Anyway, all right. well this is a first for making permaculture stronger, publicly sharing my feelings ahead of my thoughts. Indeed, in the last few months I've had to do a lot of work on myself to get to the point where I'm capable of bringing the energy I want to bring to this whole engagement. I feel like I'm there, and I can now do this as long as I keep a close eye on myself as I go along. Let's see how we go. Maybe you can keep a close eye on me also and enlighten me when I get off track. Now to recap something I said above, but now in relationship to this specific book, I want to stress that this is nothing to do with who's wrong and who's right. This is everything to do with inviting the authors and anyone in the entire permaculture community into a different kind of dialogue where the aim is that all parties grow and develop. This dialogue requires that we find civil and constructive ways of not brushing over, but diving directly into our differences in, in design process understandings in a way that lets us come through these into the realm of fresh insights and discoveries. Enough pretext, feelings included. Let us divide, uh, let, us divide let's, let us dive into the first of three talking points arising for me as I engage with this wonderful contribution to permaculture's evolution. Talking point one this is the, he- this, the um, section heading. Talking point one worldviews and metaphors While I am no expert in either worldviews or metaphors, together I find them such an interesting and important topic. In particular, I'm fascinated by the metaphors we use when trying to make permaculture design accessible, initially to ourselves, then to others. Aside from the specific idea or process we use a particular metaphor to convey, we can zoom out and pay attention to the kinds or categories of metaphor we use. These kinds or categories I find powerful windows into the worldview we literally view the world from and through. We can then ask whether the worldview we are working from is best is the best suited to the context of its application, where as soon as the worldview changes, the downstream metaphors all change too. I've got a footnote on the word downstream pointing out that um, I'm using a metaphor there. Before coming back to building your permaculture property, I want to share a distinction between two of the many worldviews available to us. I'll call these a mechanical or mechanistic worldview and a living worldview. I also think I'll edit this because it's it's not my understanding is there's not many worldviews available to us. You know, if, if you go deep enough, there's you know there's a handful. Um anyway, again I, I write I'm sharing my limited current understanding here where I invite crash testing and clarification of everything I say. Now the next heading here is mechanistic worldview. In this worldview, we view things as if they were mechanisms or machines. As makes sense when working with a clock, a computer, or a billiard table, this worldview has us break things down into their component parts, examine these parts in isolation, then reassemble them to build up an understanding of the whole. There's a, f- a footnote here where um, I say, as Christopher Alexander has put it in his na- The Nature of Order series. This is, a, this is Christopher Alexander's words. Present-day conventional wisdom, perhaps Cartesian and mechanistic in origin, tells us that everything is made of parts. In, be, in particular, people believe today that every whole is made of parts. The key aspect of this belief is the, is the idea that the parts come before the whole. In short, the parts exist as elements of some kind, which are then brought into relationship with one another or combined. A you know, center is created out of these parts and their combinations as a result. So he's he's just sort of honing in on that aspect of of mechanistic worldview. Um, I go on to write, Our modern lives are thoroughly infused with machines that were built by assembling mass-produced near-identical components. Most of us interface directly with hundreds and indirectly with hundreds of thousands of machines every day. As I understand it, the mechanistic worldview appropriate to understanding and working with these machines has become our default way of seeing almost everything. Now I've got a there's a footnote, um, some words from from the writer Jeremy Lent here. There's a there's a link to the article. These are from um, Jeremy Lent. wrote It's kind of a long note, but I, I think I'll read it out. We got time. He writes, this mechanistic worldview has deep roots in Western thought. The great pioneers of the scientific revolution, such as Galileo, Kepler and Newton, believed they were decoding, in in quotation marks, God's book, which was written in the language of mathematics. God was conceived as a great clockmaker, the artificer, who constructed the intricate machine of nature so flawlessly that once it was set in motion, there was nothing more to do, bar the occasional miracle, than let it run its course. What is the heart but a spring, wrote Thomas Hobbes, and the nerves but so many strings. Descartes flatly declared, I do not recognize any difference between the machines made from, by craftsmen and the various bodies that nature alone composes. What are we up to? Oh yeah, I've got, a, I've got an image of a mechanical duck from like 1700s or something. Oh yes, I I say here, it is fascinating to me how a certain subset of objects, i.e. machines, have emerged from within the living processes of the earth, including those sub-processes we call human, and we have then separated out the machines to hold them up as an interpretive lens to understand the life forces that birthed them. Even though I've been aware of the mechanistic worldview for a while, it is still deeply embedded within me where I have observed a strong bias toward identifying the relevant parts within any situation, and then assembling or reassembling them into more functional configurations. So the next section is called Living Worldview, where I write, In a living worldview, things are seen as alive and as ebbing and flowing organisms, in brackets, rather than dead machines. Rather than treating holes as if they were entities assembled from pre-existing parts, a living worldview sees such parts as organs which have unfolded or emerged from pre-existing holes as the feet and lungs of a frog have emerged from the growth of the frog as a whole. Here, we cannot separate out the different parts or organs without killing the frog or whatever it is. Instead, the approach to understanding is immersing in the living complexity of the whole and gradually developing an affinity or kinship with it. As I see it, such a living worldview has more affinity with any indigenous worldview or way of life than does the mechanistic worldview. The next section is titled, Which one is right? While I'm sure we can agree they are different, neither a mechanistic or living worldview is inherently right or wrong. They both have their place and their value. If we are designing or building or operating or fixing a machine, a mechanistic worldview makes more sense than a living worldview. I um, this is an aside. I, I visited a, a friend today, and he was he was fixing his tractor, and it was quite amazing. He had actually literally separated it into two bits and um, opened up the gearbox, and there was all these shiny cogs, and oh my gosh, it's fascinating. and um, found that one of the cogs had a one of the teeth had sheared off broken off and so he'd he'd order a replacement cog and he was going to you know he's going to take out the broken cog replace the it with a new cog and then put it all back together and um and and it, it ought to start up and and run run well um so you know taking a mechanistic approach to a machine which is a very sound approach in the in the post i write then next if by contrast, we are engaging with a plant, child, or ecology. A living worldview will likely serve us better than a mechanistic one. As I write that, I think of you know, like as a parent, your child's misbehaving or whatever, and you you know you can take an approach that's more like trying to find the broken the broken cog <laughs> and fix it. Sometimes to the point where you actually threaten the the child with with replacement. No, I know, none of you parents out there have ever done that. Anyway, I'll write, it is a matter of evolving our capacity to pay attention to and then engage with the worldview most appropriate to the context in which we are working. I've got a footnote that says, yeah, I get it. This is a lot easier to say than to do. We can't just, you know, switch worldviews on on a dime or whatever it's... It's difficult and long and hard work. By its nature, I write, permaculture must engage with both worldviews. It deals with both living beings, such as trees, and with machines, such as bulldozers. Or walk behind tractors, or mobile phones. Or, um, I don't know, egg incubators. The question is, at what levels and in what situations is each worldview most appropriate? Next section is called Metaphors, where I say, I now I write, I now want to suggest a hypothesis. The worldview we are operating from will unconsciously dictate the metaphors we choose to communicate our ideas. If we are operating from a mechanistic worldview, our metaphors will be sourced from the world of machines. If we are operating from a living worldview, our metaphors will be sourced from the world of life. Again, I welcome any and all perspectives on this hypothesis. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me that our worldview will dictate the metaphors we choose to use to explain ourselves. What do you think? Next section is, brings our focus back to the book and it's titled The Metaphors in Building Your Permaculture Property. Let us now consider the choice of metaphors in building your permaculture property. Asking, one, are they sourced from the world of machines? And hence, if the hypothesis holds from a mechanistic worldview or from the world of life, and hence a living worldview. To what extent is that worldview, oh, sorry, to, to what extent is that worldview the best suited to the context of its application? I'll mention first that in the book's treatment of design process, I found a clear example of a living metaphor being used to shed light on the dynamics of healthy design process. In the author's words, from page 83 and 84 figure 2.3 and i show an image of this it's a watershed um with like rivulets turning into streams into creeks into rivers and so on and down into a delta um, and a kind of a bay or lagoon Um, figure 2.3 shows how watershed gathers individual drops of water into larger and larger channels starting with raindrops, then sheet flow before going to rills, runnels, creeks, streams and then the river until e- eventually ending up in a delta at the edge of a lake or ocean. The diagnosis and design steps function in the same way. In step 2, Diagnose, our goal is to create a file stream, pun intended, this is all their words, with the function of converting the torrential downpour of information into appropriately compartmentalized physical or digital file folders. These file folders serve the same function as dams, swales, subsoiling and gabions to channel and store information into appropriate stream tributaries that correspond to the 11 property resources. Um, Maybe I'll read those out. So from the diagram, it's geography, access, water, fencing structures, flora, fauna, business, (coughs) technology, soil. There's a few others in there. So it's... Um, informed by the scale of permanence. Um, Anyway, they say once these 11 tributaries begin filling with information, they will inevitably flow downstream and deposit themselves as design ideas that start with broad brushstrokes down to minute details, or what David Hongren refers to as design from patterns to details. The way I like to think about this analogy is that the river is diagnosis and the delta is design. More on design in the next chapter. As soon as I started to mimic the dendritic branching pattern of a watershed to gather and distribute information, my obsession about learning everything there was to know about permaculture vanished. I stopped binging on information memorization. This was because I started to notice that the amount of information falling into the catchment of my mind, just like the amount of precipitation falling in a watershed, can exceed the capacity of the file stream or water channels. And when this happened... It was inevitable that the flow of data or rain would burst its banks and flood onto my physical or digital desktop as unfiled resources. In other words, information, no matter how good the quality, is only as good as your ability to put it to productive use. That being said, you don't want a drought of information either because the speed and quality of your design insights are directly proportional to the quantity and quality of your data. Poor information yields poor design. You don't want torrential downpours of data. You want a slow and steady drizzle that keeps pace with the evolution of your file stream. You will also find that just as an older watershed that contains high carbon soils and deep rooted vegetation can handle more rain and even the occasional flash flood, a more established file stream can better slow, spread, and sink the occasional higher flows of information. Um, I'm engaging with this at a new level. I mean, gosh. I could have another talking point or an episode just on this. Um, maybe maybe this is, I'll just throw in a, this isn't in the, I won't put this into the, um, the writing, but I'll just throw it in because it occurs to me. Particularly with respect to um, da- the reference to David Holmgren's principle design from patterns to details. Because the way I take it, the way the metaphor is being used, we're actually starting with details, which are flowing dendritically down to kind of assemble themselves into um, larger bodies of water as it were um, and, and ultimately into design so there's a, there's a sense in which to me that's actually designing from details to patterns but um, anyway i think it's a very very it's a very interesting thing to explore the way in which this metaphor is being drawn in um, but the details of how it's being used are irrelevant to this particular focus so let's come back to the focus here, which right now is on the fact that they've used, they've clearly taken a, or used a, a, an example of something in the living world, a watershed, and they're using that as an interpretive um, frame to, to shed light on certain aspects of design process. Um, and so I write, this is a great example. The authors are using something from the living world, a watershed, to shed light on an aspect of permaculture design process. Without getting into any further details oh, similar note uh, I say in a footnote what I mean here is that there's a whole other conversation about no matter where we source our metaphors it is possible to use them in more or less helpful ways um, one other thing that comes up for me there actually is um, there's there's a kind of a strong emphasis in the, in the way this metaphor is presented on data on information On organizing information and supporting it to flow into into design Um, and I guess it's just another this is a a mental note for me for a talking point for another time which is um, kind of the continuum between a very informational data focused design process and a design process that brings in flavors of being um, flavors of sensing and and feeling um, and so on again for another time can't help myself, can I? Um, so coming back to what I actually wrote, um, according to my earlier logic, this suggests this this metaphor they've used suggests that the authors are at least in part oriented toward and operating from a living worldview. I say at least in part, given that the majority of additional metaphors illustrated in the book are mechanical in nature. Whether one domino hitting another on page 3, navigating through a field of landmines on page 61, disarming bombs on page 63, directing a small ball through a maze using pulleys and dials, page 88, operating a pinball machine, page 132, or shooting birdshot, buckshot or a slug through a shotgun or using a bazooka, page 142, mechanical slash machine metaphors are used repeatedly to explain core ideas. The two most central metaphors used to illustrate the dynamics of permaculture design process, as understood by the authors, are a ball in the maze machine and a pinball machine. And I've got um, images here. Um, the first images of a maze and ball machine, where you've got four dials labelled form, scale, placement, and timing, and then you've got this maze with little wooden, or um, I guess it's little wooden kind of um, edges. And you've, you've got to try and steer a ball, a metal ball, through the through the maze, avoiding these holes. And along the way, there's little fields and a little tractor and a greenhouse and trees and a windmill and stuff like that. So the idea is that you're balancing um, and intervening regarding scale, timing, form and placement to, to navigate through the, the design process. And then there's a picture of a pinball machine called Energy Flow Adventures in Permaculture. And that's... The authors are using that to get across the idea of source and sink and um, intervening in the flow of, of energy through a site. I go on to write, I want to note here that this tendency is in no way unique in the permaculture literature. In the footnote, I say in episode 64 of the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast, for instance, I notice such a bias in other books about permaculture design. For instance, see... Page said for instance a lot there, twice. See page 20 of Heming- Toby Hemingway's The Permaculture City um, or page 18 of Practical Permaculture by Jesse Bloom and Dave Boneleen. Um, I thought there's an M in there, but anyway, yeah, just a couple of books that have come out in the last, whatever it is, five or six years and, um, and they, they use mechanistic metaphors also. Um, I, I say, uh, next, uh, next right, I also want to emphasize that all these metaphors, as in these metaphors that are used in building a permaculture property, are used brilliantly to make their target points with clarity. Yet, if what I shared above is valid, the dominance of mechanical metaphors indicates that the book is centered in a mechanistic worldview. As I emphasize, there's nothing wrong with this worldview when used in its relevant context of application. Namely, the world of machines. However, it is my sense that the relevant context for permaculture design process as a whole is not the world of machines, but is the world of life. Or at the very least, I feel it would be a worthwhile experiment to try and articulate permaculture design process from within a living worldview, using living metaphors. Which brings me to a set of questions around my first talking point. I'll read them out. As permaculture designers, teachers, and authors, how much attention are we paying to the metaphors we use? How much attention ought we be paying? Ought, ought we to be paying? Ought we be paying to the metaphors we use? Sentence could use a bit of work. You get the gist. Do the metaphors we choose flow from and hence reveal the world? view we default to is that a reasonable or unre- you know what do you think about the hypothesis oh the next question is what do you think about this what do you feel about this does this stuff even matter am i wasting your time is it possible to make the points we want to make in a permaculture design context using living metaphors is that even possible or is our audience so steeped in the mechanistic worldview and the technosphere at it is enabled, that we must prioritise machine metaphors in order to stay accessible. I'll be curious to hear how these questions land for you, where they take you, and I'm grateful to Rob, Dakota and Michelle for inadvertently prompting me to ask them. Please talk to me in the comments below or by sending me a message. We'll look at another core pattern in the book and raise an associated talking point in part two of this series, I then have some acknowledgements where I write thanks to Dakota Cohen for reviewing a draft and making suggestions that helped me more accurately represent the book. Which is not to say that I've succeeded, um, but thanks for helping me in my efforts to do so. Uh, and thanks so much, Dakota, just for leading in. You know, for really having energy for 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 getting into this stuff. I'm so excited. Um, where, where the this, where this series is going to lead I'm really looking forward to some juicy long conversations um, that we'll share on upcoming podcast episodes uh, I also thank John Buttery and Beck Rafferty from the Making Permaculture Stronger Developmental Community for their suggestions and James Andrews for helping me clean up the overall energy of this piece and that's where the writing ends aside from the endnotes Well that's uh, that's about it for this episode. It's quite a short one. Hope it kinda hope the experience of hearing me read it, the audiobook version, kinda landed okay. It's there there to be read if you'd like to read it. Um, just sitting with myself, it, I am feeling glad to have I've taken the time to to really shift the energy and I've done everything I can to, to kind of get rid of. Um, Non-conducive energies, you know, I'm really interested in honouring the different places we're all coming from and, 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 and letting those come together or ha- and harmonise and, and, ta- and take us to new places, open new vistas, open new pathways. And I, and I do, clearly, I, you know, I, do, I do feel that um, it's a worthwhile uh, thing to be exploring the worldviews we're operating from and the, the metaphors we're using to explain ourselves um and it's something i'm inviting myself to do more of and i'm I'm just curious to to invite others out there to to bring their attention to the same thing and and swap notes and whatnot i mean i can share that in 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 my development of what i'm calling living design process i'm really consciously um, being informed by and using living and life metaphors every every step of the way and i'm finding it's quite quite possible and um, and and powerful, um, so far. But I'm not I'm not clear, you know, that it makes sense to be dogmatic about these things. There's, I'm sure there's, there's there's time and place for mechanical metaphors, and indeed they they sneak in all the time and just go into our sentences. Every day we talk about changing gears or the weak link in the chain or you know whatever it is. If you start to look for them, mechanical metaphors are, are littered throughout our, our everyday language in the modern world um so i don't want to get too pedantic or dogmatic or anal about this stuff but um anyway um this hopefully this <laughs> speaking mechanical metaphors this gets the gets the ball rolling and um and i look forward to, to um furthering the conversation in the, in the next episode where we'll be looking to give you a, a sneak preview we'll be looking into um, the way we tend to kind of even frame or structure um our, our thinking and sharing about design process in terms of um, uh, steps, you know, or, uh, methodologies or formulas, and, and just asking some hopefully helpful and yet difficult and um, interesting po- questions about that. Find out more about the book. Uh, I'll give you a couple of sites. One is vergepermaculture.ca, and you can also track down Dakota at uh, Cohen Farm. .ca. And he's also got a podcast that's called Building Your Permaculture Property. Check out the project this podcast is part of at makingpermaculturestronger.net. There's a small, wonderful few people um, who have become patrons of the project. You can go to makingpermaculturestronger.net slash support if you are um, feeling you know uh, the, enough any value in this or you know just for whatever reason you, you feel... Um, feel an impulse um, to to support that's really deeply appreciated. I'm I'm really I'm excited to be a, to be ramping this up or to just I've I've got a I've got a lot of places I want to go. Let's say um, I'm on I'm on a bit of a mission with this project, and um, I'd like to cover a lot of ground, and um, I'd also like to know that that is um, is worth worth my while because i i also do have the option of just leaping ahead to sort in a sense where i am offline and and proceeding from there but i i right now i'm feeling like it's really worthwhile to uh, partially retrace my steps but but it's not it's not a, it's also about um about in some ways taking them afresh and and, and sharing the journey and inviting others into it anyway this is turning into a bit of a ramble, so I'll wrap it up and look forward to catching you in the next episode. Thanks so much for, for joining me and your, your lovely interest and attention. <laughs>